Good evening. Uh, my name is David Hunter, and I'm the Cottrell Rolfs Chair of Catholic Studies here at the University of Kentucky. Uh, welcome to our program tonight. Uh, I'm very pleased to uh, be able to welcome Professor Hillis, Gregory Hillis, from Bellarmine University in Louisville. Uh, before we get started, um, you'll notice this uh, program is uh, sponsored or co-sponsored by a number of groups, including the uh, African-American and Africana Studies program at the University of Kentucky. Also by the Newman Foundation, Incorporated, and uh, we have a representative from the Newman Foundation, uh, Katie Yunker, who wanted to say a few words here at the beginning about the foundation and its mission. Thank you, Dr. Hunter. The Newman Foundation is a, a local nonprofit that supports spiritual, intellectual, and personal development through the Newman Apostolate in the Catholic Diocese of Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm a lifelong Catholic, and I have a hard time describing the Newman Apostolate to other lifelong Catholics, uh, let alone people that you meet in the street. So, But what's, what's particularly relevant here, it's very broad-ranging, it is deeply concerned with the presentation of Catholic thought and culture to the whole university community. And when you hear that part of the Newman Apostolate, the, the reason for our supporting um, talks like this, uh, it becomes apparent. We actually have a, uh, a long-running series of programs called the Distinguished Speakers um, Program, in which we also present uh, speakers, sometimes in conjunction with Dr. Hunter and others, sometimes uh, alone, uh, that are about Catholic topics and Catholic issues. Um, if you are, if you would be interested in knowing what uh, programs we have to offer coming up, we invite you to visit our website. You can look for Newman, N-E-W-M-A-N Foundation, and look for UK or Lexington uh, to, to link it to us. Or you can go to our webpage, www.newmanfnd, so short form of foundation, .org, um, and you can sign up on our homepage to receive updates, newsletters, and information about talks that we are that we are sponsoring, or you can just come back to that page periodically to see if there's something coming up that would interest you. Thank you very much for attending tonight. Thank you very much, Katie. And uh, one bonus of going to the Newman Foundation website will be that you'll eventually be able to find a link to tonight's program to uh, Dr. Hillis's talk in case you want to check it out again or uh, recommend it to somebody else. Um, well, it gives me great pleasure, and it's an honor, to uh, introduce uh, Professor Gregory Hillis. Uh, Greg is a native of Alberta, Canada. Um, if you follow him on Twitter, you know that he never lets you forget that he's Canadian and that he's <laughs> lots of things about um, uh, hockey. But anyway, uh, Greg is an associate professor of theology at uh, Bellarmine University in Louisville, where he has taught for 10 years. Uh, he, has received, he received his BA degree from Rocky Mountain College, uh, BA from the University of Waterloo, and the MA and PhD degrees from McMaster University. 
after studying and writing on patristic theology, which is the study of early Christian authors, uh, Professor Hillis has focused in more recent years on the theology and spirituality of Thomas Merton. Uh, as I'm sure many of you know, Merton was a, an important Catholic writer, a monk who lived at Gethsemane, the Abbey of Gethsemane uh, near Bardstown. Uh, in addition to publishing pieces on Merton's understanding of nonviolence, uh, ecumenical dialogue, uh, Eucharistic theology, uh, he, Professor Hillis uh, has also published on his writings on racism, and he'll be addressing that tonight. And he's currently working on a book on Merton's uh, Catholic identity for liturgical press. Uh, he also writes brief, brief reflections on theology and spirituality on a blog titled My Unquiet Heart. So please join me welcoming Professor Greg Hillis. Good evening. Thank you for taking your... Uh, time out of your evening to hear this. I first learned about Father August Thompson one year ago when I was in Alexandria, Louisiana, to teach a group of candidates for the permanent diaconate. I had led the group in a discussion on a previous weekend on the church's teaching on racism, and it was then the students told me about Father Thompson, a retired black priest in the Diocese of Alexandria. I learned that he was an important figure in the civil rights movement in Louisiana, that he himself experienced oppression, even from his fellow Catholics, and that he spoke out against this oppression in a published interview with the civil rights leader, John Howard Griffin. Moreover, I learned from my students, from one of the students, that Father Thompson was friends with Thomas Merton, though he couldn't really tell me much more about the relationship than that. When I returned to the office the following Monday, I went up to the Thomas Merton Center at Bellarmine University, and, which is where I teach, and the Merton Center is the official repository for Merton's literary estate. Sure enough, from out of the many files containing Merton's correspondence, the director pulled out a file containing the letters exchanged between Merton and Father Thompson between 1963 and 1968. From these letters, I learned that the two met in October 1963 and that Thompson turned to Merton for advice about a number of issues over a five-year period until Merton's untimely death in 1968. Over the next little bit, I'm going to talk about Father Thompson's relationship with Thomas Merton. In essence, I want to address a question. Why was it that an oppressed black Catholic priest in the Deep South turned to a white monk living in a contemplative monastery in Kentucky for guidance. To address this question, it will be necessary to explore one of the facets of Merton's thought that is perhaps least well-known, his writing on racism. Merton remains perhaps the most well-known American Catholic writer of the 20th century. During the first part of his monastic life from 1941 until the late 1950s, he wrote autobiographical books, including his famous Seven Story Mountain, as well as a book as books and essays on prayer and contemplation. 
Beginning in the late 1950s, though, Merton turned his attention more fully to social issues and is most known for his writings on war. However, out in the woods of Kentucky, Merton also wrote extensively on racism. Sadly, as the director of the Thomas Merton Center has said, Paul Pearson, he wrote, Merton's writings on racism are all too frequently skirted over, if not completely ignored. My lecture is one small attempt to correct this and to bring to light Merton's engagement with the issue of civil rights. And I'll do this first by examining what I consider to be his best essay on the problem of racism, and then by looking at the letters that he and Father Thompson exchanged with one another. And in the process, we'll learn a little bit more about Father Thompson and about the problem of racism in the Catholic Church itself. I do want to make a brief note about language. Uh, both Merton and Father Thompson will use language uh, to talk about African Americans uh, in ways that we don't use uh, talk today. I haven't cleaned up that language. Uh, that's just the language that, when I quote them, that's the language that is going to be used. So uh, just a forewarning on that. Let's begin with Merton. Prior to the 1960s, Merton wrote little about the problem of racism. There's a brief but important passage in his 1948 autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, about racial inequality, and it garnered the favorable attention of the black civil rights leader, Eldridge Cleaver, who quoted the passage at length in, a 19, in his 1968 book, Soul on Ice. However, between 48 and 61, Merton's references to racism were limited. This started to change in 61 and 62, but it was his exposure in 1963 to the writings of noted writer and civil rights activist James Baldwin that propelled him to engage the issue more directly. Shortly after reading Baldwin, Merton sent a letter of appreciation to him and wrote an essay on Baldwin for the June 1963 issue of Liberation, a magazine associated with the New Left. This would be his first foray into the issue of racism, but it would only be the starting point. There are many more references to the problem in his journals and letters, and his contacts with those in the civil rights movement increased. One of these contacts was John Howard Griffin, a white journalist who wrote Black Like Me, a book about Griffin's experiences in the Deep South when he chemically altered his appearance so as to look like a black man. Merton read Black Like Me in 1962, noting this briefly in a journal entry, and soon after Merton read James Baldwin, Griffin came to visit Merton at Gethsemane, where Griffin shared with Merton stories of racial oppression and violence. So began a regular correspondence between the two that continued for the next five years until the end of Merton's life. Merton became more and more disturbed the more he learned about the problem of racism, in the spring of 1963, Edward Keating, the publisher of Ramparts magazine, and this is another uh, Catholic literary and political magazine, unfortunately it's no longer publishing, the editor approached Merton to ask him to write something on racial inequality. At first he suggested that maybe he and Baldwin could exchange a series of letters that could be published. Merton thought that was a good idea at first, and Baldwin also suggested that might be a good idea. But Merton soon had second thoughts, particularly questioning whether this would really be valuable from Baldwin's perspective. 
He instead suggested writing something on the race question from his own vantage point as a white monk in a monastery. The publisher said yes, and Merton spent the next two months writing letters to a white liberal. This essay was published in the Christmas 1963 issue of Ramparts, and later published with a new introduction in his 1964 book of essays, Seeds of Destruction. It's his most extensive essay on racial injustice, and I think his most important. His later essays on race are worthwhile in their own right, but they can also be read as addendums to this first essay. Obviously, I can't go into, it's a very long essay, uh, I can't go into the arguments of it in depth, um, so I just want to hit the highlights, as it were. As the title of the essay indicates, Merton writes as a white person to fellow whites, directing his argument particularly toward those who identify as liberals. Overarching the entire essay is Merton's conviction that the oppression of African Americans is systemic and that white liberals, A, do not do enough to fight against the racism baked into American society, and B, that they are in fact guilty of propping up this racial system, racist system, for their own well-being. Merton begins the essay on a theological note, focusing his attention first on white Christians in the South. Merton writes that Catholics in the South have explicitly and formally identified, identified themselves with racial segregation. And he lists a number of examples of white Catholic racism, noting that in Louisiana, Catholics set fire to a school rather than allow it to be integrated. And in another instance, a white Catholic priest was beaten by his white parishioners for allowing both black and white children to receive First Communion together. Merton brings up Christian racism here because, as he notes, the emphasis in the United States on freedom is rooted in a recognition of the dignity and rights uh, of the person. And although the United States is not officially Christian, Merton writes, this democratic respect for the person can be traced to the Christian concept that every man is to be regarded as Christ and treated as Christ, end quote. In other words, the United States justifies its international and national policies on the supposed idea that we are supremely concerned with the human person and with that person's rights. And we do this, as Merton writes, because our ancestors regarded every person as Christ, wished to treat him as Christ, or at least believe this to be the right way, even though they did not always follow this belief. This leads Merton to ask a pointed question. How, then, do we treat this other Christ, this person who happens to be black? Merton's answer is blunt. In the South, where most whites consider themselves Christian, we discover that belief in the Negro as a person is accepted only with serious qualifications, while the notion that he is to be treated as Christ has been overlooked. Southerners have expressed unwillingness even to ride in the same buses or, or eat alongside of African Americans. Worse still are those professed Christians who refuse to worship with their black sisters and brothers. And some Catholics even went so far as to refuse to receive the Eucharist with them. But what about white Americans, including white Christians, who support civil rights, who advocate for civil rights legislation and join African Americans in protest? 
Merton is unrelenting in his criticism of these white liberals. Although they have a, quote, generous but vague love of humankind in the abstract, end quote, white liberals have little interest in the actual equality of African Americans. White liberals were at the march in Washington because they felt good about being there. It was a balm to the liberal conscience. But while white liberals perhaps thought that black folk needed them to participate in the march, African Americans had mixed feelings. It was pleasant to see and experience the goodwill of white liberals, but black civil rights leaders know that such goodwill comes with a caveat. The white liberal wants equality, but he wants it on his own terms. He is used to a certain standard of living, Merton writes, and Merton argues that the white liberal unconsciously privileges his material comforts and security over his idealism. So when he confronts the concrete reality of what actual equality looks like, when he sees that genuine equality will mean sacrifices on his part, he is, Merton writes, going to be a very frightened mortal. Merton's convinced that the greatest threat to the civil rights movement does not come from vocal Southern racists. We know at least where those racists stand. No, the greatest threat comes from white liberals who say all the right things, but who cannot be relied upon to remain proponents of racial equality when they see precisely what this will entail for them. When they see that Racial equality will mean that society will cease being dominated and governed by whites when they see that whiteness will no longer be the standard by which society is measured. White liberals will slam on the brakes. Even today, many if not most people in America identify racism primarily in terms of interpersonal individual actions or behaviors against someone from another race. As Brian Massengale, a Catholic theologian, writes in his book on racial inequality, quote, the common sense understanding discusses racism as personal acts of rudeness, hostility, or discrimination, end quote. By these standards, the white liberal is not a racist. However, in a way that shows how far he was ahead of his time, Merton describes a, a society that is beset with systemic racism. Legislation and goodwill simply aren't going to cut it in a society to bring about racial inequality. Sorry, legislation and goodwill simply aren't going to cut it to bring about racial equality for American, African Americans, uh, given that they find themselves in the presence of a social structure which they have reason to consider inherently unjust. White liberals are wholly unprepared to give up the privilege they have as white people in a society dominated by whites. So, Merton argues, when they see that their power, influence, and wealth must erode in order for there to be racial equality, white liberals will turn on the civil rights movement and on African Americans in general. They won't support the, liberal, the civil rights movement as a means to preserve their identity as liberals. Rather, they will come to recognize the movement as promoting a revolution that they will interpret as a threat that needs to put, be put down. Indeed, Merton predicts that white liberals will ultimately decide that it is better for the establishment to be maintained by the exercise of power, which is entirely in white hands, 
and which ought to remain in white hands because they are white. And in that vein, whites will conclude that the civil rights movement is proposing an approach to racial injustice, injustice that is far too revolutionary and that it will need to be squelched. Merton's words about where the white liberal will ultimately end up are harsh and bleak. The quote begins by looking at the logic that will end up governing white liberal oppression of the civil rights movement. Conclusion. Revolution must be prevented at all costs, but demonstrations are already revolutionary. Ergo, fire on the demonstrators. Ergo, dot, dot, dot. At the end of this chain of thought, I visualize you, my liberal friend, goose-stepping down Massachusetts Avenue in the uniform of an American totalitarian party in a mass rally where nothing but the most uproarious approval is manifest, except by implication on the part of silent and strangely scented clouds of smoke drifting over from the new camps where the Negroes are living in retirement. Whatever white liberals may say to signal allegiance with the civil rights movement, white obsession with power is so pervasive, Merton thinks, that faced with the loss of it, even the white liberals will subscribe to a white supremacy akin to Nazism for the cause of supposed peace. That quote got him in some trouble, by the way. It's at this point that Merton draws on his reading of James Baldwin, Black civil rights leaders are well aware of the white liberal's subconscious hold on power, and as such, the civil rights movements, the civil rights movement's focus is not just to achieve black liberation from racial inequality, but to achieve the redemption of the white person. African Americans are, quote, seeking by Christian love and sacrifice to redeem the white person, to enlighten the white person, Merton writes. For white Americans are blinded by the endemic sin of racial injustice, and they require conversion. This conversion can only take place through the kind of nonviolence protests that leads whites towards self-examination. Merton writes, The purpose of nonviolent protest in its deepest and most spiritual dimensions is then to awaken the conscience of the white man to the awful reality of his injustice and of his sin so that he will be able to see that the Negro problem is really a white problem, that the cancer of injustice and hate, which is eating white society and is only partly manifested in racial segregation with all, with all its consequences, is rooted in the heart of the white man himself. I had the opportunity last year to speak with Bishop Edward Braxton, one of the few black Catholic bishops in the United States, and I asked him, what he made of Merton's writings on race. He responded with one word, prophetic. And his assessment is shared by others. The Merton scholar Christopher Pramuk wrote in an essay about an elderly African-American at his parish who mentioned that when she felt alienated by the ch her church and, religious, and her religious community for her civil rights work in the 1960s, Merton was the white exception. Merton got it, she said, when few others did. As I mentioned, Letters to a White Liberal appeared in the Christmas 1963 issue of Ramparts magazine. And the entire issue was devoted to the problem of racism, and Merton was not the only Catholic featured prominently in it. 
Included in the issue was an extended interview by John Howard Griffin with none other than Father August Thompson. Indeed, Father Thompson was on the cover. The interview proved to be scandalous, and in the fallout, Thompson reached out to Merton for guidance. Before looking at their letters, let's look at the interview itself. Father Thompson holds nothing back in his description of what life is like for black Catholics and for him as a black priest. Unlike their white Catholic counterparts, he says black Catholics cannot attend retreats or days of recollection, both important aspects of Catholic devotional life. Moreover, black Catholics can only attend a white parish if the distance to the closest black parish is considered inordinate. And in one town, where there was only one black Catholic and no black parishes, the white parish went so far as to pay someone to drive the black Catholic to a black parish in another town. And even if a black, or even if a white parish allows black Catholics to join them because the distance to their parish is too far, there is a protocol in place whereby they are made to sit in a section segregated from the white parishioners and are allowed to receive the Eucharist only after the white Catholics have received. Despite being a priest, Father Thompson recounts that he's frequently treated as a second-class citizen within his own church. Some white Catholics, he says, refuse to call him father, and he is often prohibited from attending certain churches, even for First Communions or Confirmations. He's not allowed to say Mass, at many white parishes. And as the only black priest in the diocese, Father Thompson says that he's rarely invited to do things with his fellow priests. He sums up his own status as a black Catholic priest by saying that he is considered by white Catholics as a Negro first, a Negro second, and finally a priest. When asked by Griffin about whether he has spoken to other priests and to the hierarchy about the treatment of black Catholics, as well as his treatment as a black priest, Thompson simply replies that, quote, he's done his share of speaking frankly. Unfortunately, Thompson tells Griffin that the hierarchy has met his concerns with indifference. It is suggested, Thompson says, that I do not appreciate the complexities of the problem. And while some bishops have spoken out, Thompson complains that the response of the church to racial prejudice in society at large and within the church herself, has been silence. I fear that the silence in some areas is quite loud, he says. Many people think that this silence is a sign that those in authority agree with the situation as it exists. For his part, Thompson declares that he refuses to remain silent in the face of such grievous prejudice. Black Catholics are unwilling to put up with prejudice in the church any longer. They will either speak out or leave. And Thompson's comments, as he concludes the interview, are stark. There are many Catholics who do not go to church because the pain of this kind of humiliation is simply unbearable. Think of going to church, going to communion, and in order to receive Christ, you must wait until every white Catholic has gone to the communion table and returned to his seat, knowing that you might well be skipped if you approach the altar while some white person was still there. Think of that encouraging people to receive communion. 
Many do, of course, but with a deep sense of sickness and then resentment that even this great sacrament should be clouded in indignity for them. Each day we see more Negroes disillusioned with what they call the white man's Christianity, and each day we see more whites disillusioned by the same scandal. Let's not forget that. Men are talking about the failure of Christianity and turning away, not because Christianity is a failure, God knows, but because it appears so through the bad actions of Christians. Bishop Charles Greco was Bishop of the Diocese of Alexandria from 1946 to 1973. He continues to be a much beloved figure among Catholics in the diocese. In fact, there's a little bit of nervousness among the Catholics in the diocese that I'm talking about him. Not this diocese, that diocese. He's a, he's a much beloved figure, but his record on civil rights is mixed. While he personally favored integration of schools and parishes, he was reluctant to push for integration, instead arguing that the church in Alexandria needed to move slowly so as not to scandalize white parishioners. So it didn't go over well with the bishop to have one of his own priests speak so openly about racism within the church. Before the interview was published, Greco tried to stop the publication of the interview by legal means, and when that proved impossible, he turned to canon law. By the fall, he believed he had succeeded in convincing the publisher not to run the interview and was very angered to learn that this was not the case. On November 21st, shortly after the interview was published, Bishop Greco wrote a scathing letter to Father Thompson. His anger is palpable from beginning to end. He begins, Dear Father Thompson, it is with keenest disappointment and displeasure that the current issue of Ramparts comes to my attention. I am sincerely and totally convinced that your appraisal of the Church, her bishops, priests, religious, and laity, in her relation to the racial problem in the South is exaggerated, distorted, and misleading, and constitutes a defamation of the Church. Bishop Greco goes on to express his anger not only about the content of the interview itself, but also about what he considers to be the duplicitous way in which it was published. He states that he granted permission to Thompson for the interview with Griffin only under the condition that it would not be published without Greco's approval. But while the supposed deception bothers him, it's clear that it's the content of the interview itself that he finds most offensive, particularly since, quote, unjustified slander against the church was expressed by a priest who's consecrated to protect her interest. He ends the letter as follows. The church has done much for you as a Catholic and as a priest, and you owe her all that you are today. But the image of your mother, the church, which you, her son, have projected to the world is unfair, is a disservice to her, and has inflicted a deep wound upon her. We pray, God, we may be able to heal it. The letter came as a shock to Father Thompson, and he immediately turned to Merton for guidance about how he should respond. This is why we have a copy of Bishop Greco's letter. Thompson sent it to Merton to get direction. It's interesting that he turned to Merton, a white monk in a contemplative monastery. The two had met a month previously when, Merton, when Thompson was at the Abbey of Gethsemane for a visit, 
and Thompson expressed gratitude for Merton's guidance in a letter shortly after that visit. It's not clear whether Thompson read Merton's letters to a white liberal before their meeting, or indeed if he read it before writing to Merton for advice, he never refers to the essay in his letters. Nevertheless, whether he read it or not, Thompson evidently understood Merton to be someone who could provide guidance to him, a black priest, this despite the fact that Merton was white. In other words, Merton, Thompson turned to Merton because he understood that Merton got it in a way many other white Catholics did not. Thompson tells Merton that he's not quite sure how to respond to Bishop Greco. It's the bishop's accusation of defamation that most bothers Thompson. He didn't intend to defame the church, but simply spoke honestly about the experience of black Catholics and of his experience as the only black Catholic priest in the diocese. How can one be guilty of defamation, he asked, when one is simply speaking the truth, particularly when he's spoken directly to the bishop himself about these matters? Thompson believes that he needs to answer Bishop Greco's letter, but he wants to do so in a way that won't inflame the already elevated tension between himself and his bishop. He therefore asks Merton for advice about whether and how he should respond. Merton responded immediately to Thompson's letter, and he did so in detail. He affirms Thompson by spe- for speaking out the way he did. He found the interview to be frank and fair, not at all extreme. It is, in fact, historic, something really first-rate, and it was very badly needed. He continues, Far from dishonoring the church, I think you have borne witness to the fact that Catholics can think and speak out for the truth in these matters. I imagine that these words from Merton were a great comfort to Thompson. While he's being attacked by his bishop and other white Southern Catholics, including his fellow priests for stepping out of line, here was a prominent American Catholic figure, arguably the most prominent American Catholic figure at the time, telling him that his voice was an important one, that he needed to speak the truth, and that he was justified in doing so. In addition to offering his assurances, Merton takes seriously the concerns Thompson raises and provides as much guidance as he can from his vantage point. Merton talks to Thompson about how to navigate the complicated waters of uh, of conflict with the superior so that he can acknowledge love for and fidelity to the bishop without betraying his own convictions. In other words, he instructs Thompson on how to do what Merton himself had been doing throughout his monastic life, remain obedient to his superiors without relinquishing the calling he feels he has to speak forthrightly and prophetically. Moreover, and even more importantly, Merton's advice centers around how Thompson could respond to his bishop in such a way as to lead him to the kind of conversion about which Merton writes in letters to a white liberal. In that vein, he cautions Thompson against responding angrily to the bishop by appealing to the bishop's limitations as a white southerner. Merton is not justifying Greco's reaction, but trying to demonstrate why it is that the bishop is in need of redemption. He writes, You have to take into account the absolute blindness and absolute self-righteousness of people who have been schooled by centuries of prejudice and injustice to see things their way and no other. 
I would say that now your job is to have, if you can, some compassion for the bishop. And if you refrain from goading him, refrain for his sake even more than for your own. He can't handle it rightly. Insofar as obedience can at the moment help him to calm down, it can be of help, some help to you and to the cause of the Negro. At least, I hope so. On the one hand, if read in a certain way, Merton could be seen to be making excuses for the bishop's intransigence. Even worse, the advice could be interpreted as Merton advising Thompson to go easy on his bishop, to, to do what so many white authorities, including white bishops and priests, had been telling black people to do all along. Just be patient. But given the vehemence of Merton's letters to a white liberal and his criticism there of precisely this white exhortation to patience, we can be certain that this was not what Merton was trying to do, nor was he trying to make excuses for the bishop. Rather, he's calling Thompson to work for his bishop's conversion. Merton was a great proponent of dialogue, which he understood to be central to the task of nonviolence. He saw dialogue whereby we endeavor to understand the perspective of another, even the perspective of those who are our enemies, as the primary way to express love for one another. But such dialogue rooted in love is demanding. It requires that we actually listen to our opponent. Uh, for, as Merton writes in an important 1967 essay on nonviolence, if our interlocutor sees that we are completely that we are completely incapable of listening to him with an open mind our nonviolence will have nothing to say to him except that we distrust him and seek to outwit him moreover nonviolence requires an unwillingness to view our opponent as beyond hope dialogue requires that we go forward in hope recognizing that each person is capable of conversion, that there is in man a potentiality for peace and order which can be realized provided the right conditions are there. In his advice to Thompson uh, to recognize Greco's limitations and to have compassion for him, Merton is not telling his friend to be silent and acquiescent in the face of oppression. Rather, he exhorts Thompson to understand his engagement with his bishop in terms of the purposes of nonviolence. The possibility of conversion, of transformation, remains open only if Thompson engages his bishop in love without antagonizing him. It's clear from Thompson's reply to Merton that he appreciated this advice. Along with his own letter, he includes the letter he wrote back to Bishop Greco, and in the letter... Thompson declares his unwavering love for Greco and for the church. He apologizes that he offended the bishop while still maintaining that he did little else but speak the truth. I said what I said because I was honestly convinced I was giving an honest answer to the questions asked, not only for the good of the Negro but for the good of the whole church. He ends the letter by again professing his love. This crisis between Thompson and his bishop appears to have abated swiftly. Two months after his letter to Merton, Thomas, uh, Thompson writes to ask Merton's advice about something else. He's received an invitation from another priest 
in the Catholic Interracial Council to participate in a workshop with Jewish and Protestant clergy about civil rights protest. The workshop is secret, and Thompson writes that he doesn't plan on telling the bishop about participating in it. He tells Merton that he knows he needs to tread lightly now, given the bishop's displeasure, but also he feels he needs to follow his own conscience. He asks for any advice Merton can give him. Merton again responds immediately. While he doesn't have any specific guidance to give Thompson regarding his participation in the workshop, about which Merton is enthusiastic, he takes the opportunity to lament the state of the church in the United States regarding the race issue and to advise Thompson again regarding his relationship with Bishop Greco. Greco. His words are worth quoting at length. Looking at the broad perspective of the whole problem, from the point of view of the priest, I think we have to face the very serious fact that, that in the church today, obedience is invoked constantly to frustrate the real work that ought to be done for genuine issues, war, race, etc., the principles remain perfectly true. A subject does lack information, perhaps cannot judge sufficiently well, etc. But when the decision is constantly pushed back higher up, and when no decision comes from higher up except to play safe and do nothing, there is a real problem. One of Merton's big frustrations as a monk and a writer was the problem of obedience to his own superiors. Merton was prohibited from writing about war by the abbot general of the Trappist, who considered the issue of nuclear war to be an inappropriate topic for a contemplative monk to be writing about. But the problem, as Merton saw it, was that no one else in the church was writing about it. So it appeared to him that his religious superiors, superiors were simply kicking the can further down the street without addressing the issues and using obedience as a handy excuse to stay silent. Merton sees the same thing happening to Thompson and civil rights. Thompson has been asked under obedience to refrain from speaking out on civil rights, yet there are few in the church who are actually confronting the problem. Indeed, as Thompson's interview clearly showed, the church, particularly in the South, was implicated in the continuance of racial prejudice. And as a black priest in the South... Thompson was in a unique position to speak out against racial, um, racial injustice within his own church. Unfortunately, he was also in the unique position as a priest under obedience to his bishop. If he goes too far, he'll be silenced. Merton knows from his own experience that Thompson will get nowhere if his superior simply views him as a troublemaker. This will lead the bishop to be unwilling to listen to anything Thompson has to say, no matter that he has to, what he has to say is something the bishop may actually need to hear. Merton writes that the key for Thompson will be to refrain from all violence in the face of the violence being committed against African Americans. All I can say is that I certainly hope God will protect you and your people and that something can be done to change things. You will need an awful lot of courage and trust, and that is why you must see to it as far as you can that there is as little as possible of the same violence in your own heart. The courage that is without violence is the greatest of all because it relies completely on God and not on man's strength. The Psalms are surely the real expression of the sufferings and conflicts that you face there. Fill your heart with them, and Christ will live and fight in you. Over three years went by 
before Merton and Thompson corresponded again. This time, Thompson again contacts Merton to get his feedback on recent correspondence between himself and Archbishop John Dearden, the Archbishop of Detroit. Thompson had taken offense to something the Archbishop had said in the National Catholic Reporter, and Thompson showed, uh, and Thompson showed, uh, or felt that he showed a lack of understanding of the Church's complicity in racial injustice. And he wrote a six-page single-space letter to Dearden in response. While he didn't receive a direct response from the Archbishop, he did receive a letter one month later from a priest in the Archdiocese of Detroit asking him on behalf of the Archbishop if he'd be willing to volunteer some of his time to come up to the Archdiocese to help with some of the inner city parishes, many of which have substantial black populations. In the letter, we discover the astonishing detail that there was at the time only one black priest in the entire Archdiocese of Detroit. Thompson again asks Merton for advice. In two different letters, Merton tentatively suggests that Thompson maybe should go to Detroit, but acknowledges that his understanding of the situation is limited. Either way, he tells Thompson that he'll support him no matter what he intends to do, and he praises Thompson for his extremely powerful letter to Archbishop Dearden, which clearly made an impression. Indeed, echoing some of what he said in a previous letter, Merton writes that Dearden and other bishops actually do want to understand what is going on, but there are so many barriers preventing them as white men from truly understanding that they rarely get more than a quarter of the picture. Four months after this exchange of correspondence about Detroit, Merton wrote, or Thompson wrote what would be his last letter to Merton. In it, he describes a conversation he recently had with Bishop Greco that demonstrated to him that Greco still didn't really understand the situation of black Catholics in his diocese. Merton responds a month later in what would be his last letter to the priest. He doesn't respond directly to Father Thompson's conversation with Bishop Greco, but instead writes about the tragedy that occurred shortly after Merton received Thompson's letter, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. While Merton and King never met, the two knew of one another, and in the run-up to Memphis, June and John Youngblood, Friends and co-workers of King encouraged King to make a retreat at the Abbey of Gethsemane. This retreat would, of course, never occur. In his letter to Thompson, Merton expresses some measure of despair about the future of race relations in a post-King America. There is a great sickness, he writes, the sickness of decaying Western civilization. In this vein, Merton wonders what Christians are to do now in the face of racial injustice. His answer merits full quotation. The big thing for Christians is to live the truth that in Christ there is absolutely no distinction between black and white. But the adversary has made sure that a very real distinction exists due to the sins of history. Neither can be ignored. We have to learn the reality of the difference and emphasize black and white identities and qualities and rights and see beyond to the inner unity. The unity is in Christ, not in the affluent society. Too often I encounter people who either dismiss or reject Merton's Catholicism. Traditionalist Catholics view Merton's dialogical engagement with 
Asian religions with suspicion and will question the authenticity of his faith. Others who are attracted to Merton's writings on social issues but who aren't very attracted to Catholicism tend either to disregard his Catholic identity as incidental or to view him as a rebellious Catholic Catholic at odds with his own church. We've already seen how, in letters to a white liberal, Merton highlights the scandal of Catholic bigotry by pointing to the Incarnation and to what God becoming flesh tells us about the value and dignity of all people. In this, his last letter to Thompson, Merton again focuses on the theological, arguing that Christians need to take seriously the implications of race relations, or, uh, need to take seriously the implication, the implications of the Incarnation for race relations. It's not enough for Christians merely to affirm the reality of God becoming flesh. Christians must actually live this truth out. And for Merton, this means recognizing the fundamental unity of humankind that the Incarnation reveals. In becoming human, God demonstrated that all humanity has a value and dignity that transcends and encompasses everyone. In his letter to Thompson, Merton says that Christians need to live that out that they need to understand that Christ has given us an identity that transcends and encompasses all the ways that we divide ourselves from each other, including a long race. In Christ, therefore, he writes, there is no distinction between black and white. Now, Merton does not mean that there are no differences between white and black Americans. Differences exist, and they matter. They are what make each individual and each culture unique and distinct. But beyond the differences is, Merton argues, an inner unity rooted in Christ himself, and it's up to Christians to live that unity out. Thompson and Merton never corresponded again after this letter. In September 1968, Merton left the Abbey of Gethsemane for a trip first to New Mexico, Alaska, and California, and then finally to Asia. On December 10, 1968, Merton died suddenly and tragically after giving a talk at a conference he was attending in Bangkok. 24 years later, in an interview with the local Alexandria newspaper, the Alexandria Town Talk, Father Thompson reflected on his relationship with Thomas Merton. Noting that Merton was very much concerned about race, Thompson says that Merton's letters gave me courage to keep going. He also tells his interviewer that after Merton's death, Thompson visited Merton's hermitage and said Mass, using Merton's chalice. In the years following Merton's death, Father Thompson continued to fight for racial justice in the Catholic Church. In a 72 interview, he continues to lament the state of things in the Church. He is criticized by white Catholics for being too outspoken and criticized by black Catholics for doing, not doing more. And while he acknowledges that progress has been made, he laments that the progress is slow and always forced. White people ask, what do we need to do for you, he says. The question should be, what can we do to make the church more Christian? In a 1982 interview, Thompson again acknowledges progress, but notes that black Catholics are still not fully included in the life of the Catholic Church. All we want he says, is a chance to be truly Catholic. And in a 1997 interview with the distinguished Vatican reporter John Allen, Thompson continues to criticize the church, both for its history of racial prejudice 
and its continued reluctance to be countercultural when it comes to race relations. I really feel, for the most part, that the Church has been a follower instead of a leader, he laments. Now, I've really only scratched the surface in this lecture in telling about the kind of oppression that Father Thompson experienced throughout his life. In an unpublished journal that John Howard Griffin kept from 1964 to 1966 about Father Thompson, Griffin recounts in detail the violence that Thompson continually faced. Faced with threats, bombings, and daily expressions of hatred, Thompson reassured Griffin that he was willing to die if God willed it. Don't worry so much, he said. Think how nice it will be if they get me. I can go to heaven young. It's from out of this context that Thompson turned to Merton. Faced with a population that regularly referred to him, and this is his words referring to himself, faced with a population that regularly referred to him hatefully as the, quote, nigger priest, a bishop who seemed unwilling to listen to him, and a church in which he experienced life as a second-class Catholic simply because he was black, Father Thompson found in Merton a fellow priest who understood. They were both priests of the Catholic Church, yet priests in vastly different cultural and racial contexts. While Thompson experienced daily oppression, Merton existed as a contemplative in the woods of Kentucky. And yet, from his vantage point, and despite his own identity as a white American, Merton wrote about and responded to the problem of systemic racism in a prophetic way that led civil rights activists like Father August Thompson to recognize that Merton understood their plight. We would do well to delve more deeply into Merton's writings on race, to understand more thoroughly what is going on in society today. But we would also do well to keep alive the heroic witness of women and men like Father Thompson. Allow, allow me to end with one brief story. I mentioned at the beginning of this lecture that I learned about Father Thompson a year ago while in Alexandria. A month later, on another trip to Alexandria, I had the great privilege to meet him. He's very old, he's in his 90s, and he's unfortunately suffering from dementia. When I spoke with him, he could not remember John Howard Griffin, nor could he remember his interactions with Thomas Merton. At the end of our brief conversation, I asked him for a blessing, and it was at that moment that a light went on in his eyes. Dementia had not robbed him of his liturgical imagination. So when I asked for that blessing, he grabbed my arm tightly but lovingly with his left hand and placed his right hand on my head. And he gave me the most beautiful blessing I have ever received, a blessing whose words were made all the more meaningful by what I knew of what this man had suffered. Heavenly Father, this is your Son. In Jesus, he is our brother. Fill him with the grace and blessing, blessings he needs to do your work, for there is much work he needs and must do. Allow him to feel your love and let him know that I love him too. May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. Professor Hillis is willing to take questions for a little while. I'll let you. Sure. Yes, sir. 
this may, <clears throat> may seem a bit radical, but uh, based on what I, what I have experienced in, in, in my life, uh, and having read things like 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 me, and it seems that uh, it's almost impossible, maybe impossible, to be to live to be a Christ-like person without living in uh, a monastery or living uh, well, Jesus had no home except as a mm-hmm. young person uh, <clears throat> St. Francis I don't know that much about his early life I did. I went to Assisi and saw his mm-hmm. supposed cave but if, if you, it seems like if we, if we had much interest at all in material things which is hard not to do mm-hmm. then it's daggone hard be Christ-like, and I'm not just talking about, you know, whether you, you know, is it more important to be Christ-like, or is it more important to, to be a Presbyterian, or mm-hmm. a Roman Catholic, and all that, I've been through all that too, as a former seminary student, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, it just, you know, it, it seems yeah. like the material stuff makes it well, really hard. I'm going I'm to answer that by referring to a conversation I had with a monk at the Abbey of Gethsemane who knew Thomas Merton. Uh, he's a, one of my, uh, he's my spiritual director. And I said to him one time, I've got three young kids and life is busy and it's awfully hard to um, devote as much time to the spiritual life as I would like, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so I said to him, I, I expressed to him my sort of envy of his existence. And he looked at me like I was like I had six eyes, right? He said, I don't think you understand, Greg. He goes, what you have are far greater opportunities to be transformed than I ever have in the monastery. And he said, you have the opportunity on a daily basis to give of yourself to your wife, to your kids, to your students, to your co-workers, right? And all I have is silence. And so I think I think there's a sense in which we uh, we want to be careful about suggesting that we Merton would would also be careful about suggesting that there's a sort of hierarchy of holiness depending on our situation in life. But I but I thought that I thought in that direction as well years yeah. ago. Thinking well, if all I do is go to a, a, a monastery and just pray all the time, that's nice. But yeah. What is that all? What is that really doing? So I, it's like, well, Merton had good answers for that too. But we can talk about that later. It's yeah. like, you know, between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Same goes. Sorry. Yeah. The other. Um, as a African American biracial Catholic, this is something that is near and dear to my heart. So my question is, you know, what's what do you want people to take away from this? I mean, I, it, I can agree with everything. I mm-hmm. felt those things. You know, my brother's a priest here. So I get it. But what for the Caucasian people in the room, what do you want them to do with this information? Yeah, I think about that all the time. And I, I moved down to Louisville from, from Canada uh, 10 years ago. And I was a horribly naive Canadian. Not all Canadians are naive. I was. And that I didn't know anything about the racial situation in the United States. I literally knew nothing about it. I sort of thought, 
okay, well, the 60s happened, and maybe things are all right. And then I moved to Louisville, and I couldn't figure out why none of my neighbors were white or were black, right? And why I didn't ever see any uh, black people in any areas where I went and basically learned about how deeply segregated that city is, right? Along, I mean, I don't know what Lexington is like, but in Louisville, it's literally one street that divides black and white, right? And, um, and so Kim and I have thought a lot about this. My wife and I have thought a lot about this because um, we found ourselves without even wanting to kind of shuffled into like what white people do, right? Our, our church is white. Our friends are largely white. The school my kids go to, largely white. And so Kim and I have said that the thing that we recognize that we need to do is to not stay in those communities, right? Um, there, are, there are vibrant uh, black Catholic churches in the West End of Louisville, uh, and we go pretty regularly, right? Um, not to sort of, you know, put in a token appearance or whatever, but actually to just... Uh, well, allow ourselves to be present in some way, right? Um, and uh, I had a friend, I had a colleague at Bellarmine who has the same age child as mine, as the, my oldest, 13-year-old boy. And we got talking about this, and I, I remember thinking she was telling me about all the things that she's concerned about for her son. None of them were things I had to be worried about for my son, right? Violence. Uh, how to talk to police officers, you know, these sorts of things. And so I asked her exactly the question that you asked me. I said, okay, well, what do I need to do about it? She said, you know, have black friends. Be part of black communities, right? Don't just isolate yourself in your own enclave, right? I don't know. I don't know if that's satisfactory or not. What do you think? church is to love everyone uh-huh. and I don't, if I don't know you if I don't get to know you all I can do is just say hi uh-huh. and but when I know you and I know your story yeah. I go back to layers and realize wow you had that experience I did too regardless of race or gender or age yeah. or what have you we, there's so much that we have experienced that we'd be surprised are the same Yeah. so and I think that helps with us you know, once we leave here, today, think about who you select as your friends or why you don't select certain people. So, because a lot of it is unconscious. So, I, I do think that we have a long way to go for sure because none of this has really no. changed. Um, and so, but it doesn't make me less loving of my faith. Yes. It makes me love it more because that is what will be the answer for us. And I take Merton's example, too. You know, the strange thing was, here he is uh, isolated in a monastery, a contemplative monastery. But he wrote so many letters and, uh, and was engaged in friendships through those letters. Um, the, the Merton Center has 21,000 letters, and most of those are between 1958 and 1968. 
right? It's an incredible amount of correspondence that he was under that he was undertaking. And what is incredible when you read those letters, like this one too, is how revelatory he is with people. Um, with with Father Thompson, he's a friend, right? They met once, but he's a deep friend, and Merton is in total solidarity with him and expresses his own concerns and whatnot. There, there's just a full exchange between them. There's another set of letters where Merton writes to a, a, a Muslim in Pakistan, and the Muslim, Abdul Aziz, just wrote to him out of the blue. And, the, and there are no letters that are as revealing as the ones that Merton shared with him, right? Uh, I think that's a kind of model for how we dialogue, right? What does dialogue mean? It means being vulnerable to each other, and Merton certainly was like that. That's a comment. Yeah. Uh, I, think, I think the answer was given in the lecture of what, what direction should we go in and what should we do. I tell you these things just to simply let you know my credentials as a physician mm-hmm. and as a, a master of divinity. It's just put me in a position mm-hmm. to see all ethnicities, lots of languages, lots of colors, lots of cultures. And this is, uh, you mentioned St. Francis of Assisi. So this, the uh, Franciscan monks were traveling preachers. Uh, this has profoundly affected my, my everything about me. Mm-hmm. So one day, a um, true story, Franciscan monk found himself in an Italian hospital. The name of the city escapes me, it doesn't matter. And so uh, the scholastic language, of course, was Latin. And so, uh, ashamedly, the physicians would make rounds, and they would talk in scholastic language, Latin, about this particular Franciscan monk, who looked like a, you know, a corpse, probably, because of his lifestyle. And so, several days went by, and they would discuss what they thought might be wrong, and therefore what they might do or should do. And they finally came to the conclusion one day, after four or five days in this hospital, that there really wasn't anything they had to offer. And so, talking among themselves, uh, and basically, as a group, decided that he's worthless anyway. And so, this man had never spoken the entire time he was in the hospital. And so, after this happened, to their, uh, to their shame and amazement and shock and stun, he said in perfect Latin, Call no man worthless for him Christ died. Mm-hmm. I've been in a position, fortunately, where I get to do what you do every day. I've had the same concern. How can you minister to people if you're out in the woods? But he did minister, mm-hmm. for sure, or we would be here tonight. Mm-hmm. But that has really helped me. It's a true story. It, it, there's no comment about language or color or cultural ethnicity, any of that stuff. And in medicine, uh, there's nothing better than to have a Christian ethic mm-hmm. to take to humanity. And so I wanted to share that with folks and with, with uh, you, uh, because that, in my opinion, maybe I'm simplistic, no doubt I am, my daughter will say I am, <laughs> that, that to me is the answer. Uh, all these other variables and modifiers are just that. <laughs> Jesus was a short, dark-skinned Jew. And yet, many of us here cherish and adore him. Mm-hmm. So that would be my conclusion for this talk, is uh, an encouragement to keep doing 
um, practicing what this Franciscan monk told these folks. Don't ever call any man worthless mm -hmm. for whom Christ died. Oh, thank you. We all have infinite worth. Thank you. Other questions for Professor Hillis? Was um, Thomas Merton, was he influenced by or did he read up on the um, on Gandhi? Yes. How Gandhi dealt with issues like that? Yes. Because it sounds like that he used some of the same philosophies that Gandhi used in dealing with movements as he passed on to Father Thomas. Yes, so he, uh, Merton read Gandhi uh, very closely, and in fact, wrote a book on him. Um, and so, yeah, th that's an important connection for him. Thank yeah. you. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. So, how driven someone from a non-Catholic background approach yeah. Merton and his work? Well, um, the lovely thing about Merton is that he has somebody for he has something for everybody, um, regardless of their religious perspective. He'll never let somebody forget that he's Catholic, but. He also will never um, ram it down your throat. And so depending on, your, on what you're interested in, if you're interested in silence and contemplation and what that could mean for you, for you um, in your life, Merton has something for you there. If you're interested in just you know, decent writing, that has something for you there. But Merton's um, insights about uh, social issues, particularly about war and about race, um, they're, they're applicable. I mean, he uses, uh, he often will, will get to his argument. There's arguments that are often theologically based, but, um, he will, uh, articulate those ideas in such a way that, um, is accessible to people who don't have a theological background or who don't have a Catholic theological background. So I really think he's very accessible. In fact, um, uh, Sometimes I think he's more popular among non-Catholics than he is among Catholics. Yeah. What specifically would you recommend for someone who would say looking into uh, Merton for the first time? There, it, uh, if you're interested in his uh, in just getting like a little taste of what he's about, there's a really lovely book edited by a woman named Christine Bochen, uh, B-O-C-H-E-N, and it's called Thomas Merton: Essential Writings, and that gets into contemplation, dialogue. Uh, Nonviolence, uh, race, it has everything in it. And it's about 150 pages. Yeah. And I think it's like $6. Yeah. There's another great book, The Life You Live May Be Your Own. Yes, that's a very good book. Yeah. My Paul Ali. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. In the diocese itself? Um, well, there are only still a few black Catholic priests there. Uh, so that hasn't improved that much. Um, I, I want to be fair to Bishop Greco and say... Uh, and, and say something about Father Thompson that, uh, or that say, say something about Bishop Greco that Father Thompson himself said in an interview. 
He said um, uh, he had to go to seminary up north, uh, Father Thompson did, because there were no seminaries in the south that would take him uh, as a black man. And so when he was looking for diocese, only Bishop Greco would take him. Uh, And so that says something about Bishop Greco himself. Um, The church is more integrated in Alexandria than it was, but it's still segregated in ways like it is in Louisville, where we have white parishes and black parishes. Now, there's not the strict lines that say you can't go to either one, but they still exist, uh, those those distinctions. Um, And I will say that the conversation I had with these permanent diaconate candidates about the problem of race, it, it didn't go well. It was a difficult conversation to have. Um, they're older white men, um, very generous, very loving, but uh, utterly blind to the problem of racial prejudice. And it was in the midst of that conversation that one of them, who was a little more um, careful in his thinking about this, reminded them of Father Thompson. And immediately, every single one of them lit up with a smile because they knew Father Thompson as the guy who would go around giving blessings to everyone. Right? So, I don't know. It's still, there's a long way to go. A long way to go. They just lost their bishop, too. He's now the Bishop of Memphis. So. Beginning, you quoted Father Brian Massingill. Yeah. He gave a lecture last Friday called The Limits of Dialogue. Yeah. And I really think it was a, a reaction to what he said too often the U.S. bishops telling those who are working for racial justice just wait, don't be violent, don't stand up, don't yes. be loud. We need to, to dialogue. We need to dialogue without recognizing the violence that. <laughs> The African-American community yes. and other racial minorities suffer all the time yes. just by the discrimination that they experience. So I'm, I'm wondering, as you, you referred to Merton's approach to dialogue, is there ever a point where Merton feels that dialogue doesn't get anywhere? He's just yeah. he in for the long haul, as far as I know. But. So in 1967 and in 1968, he wrote uh, other essays on race, basically addressing... Um, you know, the, the summer of 67 was a very difficult uh, period of time for race relations. And there were many African Americans who were questioning the value of nonviolence. Um, Merton writes about this. I think it's an essay called The Long Hot Summer of 67. And in that essay, um, he says, What do I, as a white Catholic, have to tell the black person about nonviolence? He said, the last thing I'm going to tell them is that they need to be nonviolent. He said, that's not my position as a white Catholic. These people are being oppressed in uh, horrific ways, and if they're choosing violence as a way to respond, uh, I have nothing to say to that. My, that isn't, that's not under my purview. He says, he says uh, the, and this is almost an exact quotation, I, for one, trust the Negro, he said. And, and that means trust 
the community in whatever direction they're going to take to address the problems of, uh, that they have. So he certainly recognized the limitations of dialogue and certainly recognized the limitations of a white person telling a group of oppressed people that they just need to dialogue and they just need to wait. Father Massengale is working on a book on Merton, by the way, on Merton and race. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of time, so please join me in thanking Thank you. Thank you.